Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we discuss the dynamics of peace building around the world with a noted expert on the topic, Séverine Otisser, a professor of political science at Barnard College of Columbia University. Professor Otisser has spent more than 20 years doing peacekeeping work in sites around the world, including Somalia, Israel, and the occupied territories, Colombia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo, among others, and has interviewed hundreds of people working in these efforts in the course of her time in those locations. She's the author of uh, The Trouble with Congo and Peaceland, and has published articles in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Affairs. She's just published her latest book, The Front Lines of Peace, An Insider's Guide to Changing the World, with Oxford University Press. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today, Séverine uh, Otisser. Well, thank you so much for having me, John. It's great to have you. So... Uh, we're very happy to have you to you know, talk about your new book, The Front Lines of Peace. Uh, and I don't always ask people about personal stories, but since you lay one out in the book, I w- I'd like to ask you to talk about it here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into the field of peacemaking in the first place? I mean, I think it was a very personal kind of trajectory. Well, it, it's kind of the story of my life and, and the story of my dad's life. Um, so when I was a kid growing up in Paris, my father was a journalist. Uh, I mean, he was a, a sound technician working with journalists for the French radio stations. And he traveled the world uh, um, reporting on wars and revolutions and presidential visits and he would always come back and tell me stories, stories of him riding the Orient Express, him participating in the Algerian Revolution, him being kidnapped in Iran, um, all, all of these stories. And, and I remember as a little kid, I was absolutely fascinated. And so I grew up thinking when um an adult, I want to be like my dad. I want to go to these places and discover all of these people, all of these cultures, and have all of these wonderful adventures that my dad was telling me about. So I discovered afterwards that my dad was often, how do you say, well, he often stretched the truth. (laughs) (laughs) For instance, he, okay, I grew up thinking that my dad was one of the leaders of the Algerian revolution. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's only after, after I was a bit older that I realized that probably no, he was not. But still, anyway, at, at that time, I really, really wanted to be a journalist. And so, I started studying to be a journalist. I prepared the competitive exam to enter journalism school and I failed. And I failed because uh, I passed the uh, written exam that was really difficult, but I completely failed the oral exam because the, um, the jury thought that I had a humanitarian vocation. So I, at the beginning, I, I didn't agree, but then I had various experiences that made me realize that they were right. So I went to work 
with humanitarian aid organizations. And I was really happy at that time because I was finally working in Congo, in Afghanistan, in Kosovo. I was doing work that to me was incredibly important and uh, and incredibly rewarding. So we were helping people who were displaced uh, and who needed medical care to survive or who needed food to survive or blankets, etc. So we were doing really important work. But then I got extremely sad at the idea that I was addressing the consequences of the problem rather than addressing the causes. Right. Meaning that everything we were doing, we were, we were responding to crisis, but we were not preventing the crisis from happening. And so that's how I switched to the whole field of what I call peace building, mm-hmm. uh, basically anything that helps prevent violence or respond to violence and violence before, during, and after an armed conflict. Right. And so you get into this field and you discover that there are aspects of it that seem not very compelling to you, to put it nicely, uh, that you're very critical of. And, and I would say the heart of the book is a critique of top-down approaches to peace building that you refer to as Peace Inc. I'm more than happy to tell you more about my approach. So uh, the the heart of the book to me is is really this different approach is the success stories that I say that I tell all throughout the book, and um, I tell stories coming from all over the world, from Somaliland, uh, which is an autonomous region in the north of Somalia, from Congo, from uh, Colombia, from Israel and the Palestinian territories. And what I do throughout the book is that I contrast uh, the things that have worked to build peace, to decrease violence on the ground in conflict zones with the approach that, as you said, John, I call Peace Inc. So Peace Inc., to me, Peace Incorporated, is the traditional, conventional approach to end war. And this conventional approach relies on a series of misleading and very detrimental assumptions, like the idea that only top-down intervention can end armed violence. Top-down interventions means working with governments, with states' representatives, with elite and leaders based in capital cities. Mm-hmm. Another really common assumption is the idea that only outsiders, foreigners, have the required skills and expertise to end violence. So, for instance, is this idea that if we want to resolve the conflict in Congo or in Somalia, or in the Palestinian territories, we're going to send someone from the United States or from Paris or, or from, or from Bogota, you know, from another part of the world. And that these people, these outsiders, if they have good training, then they will be able to, re- to resolve conflict for local populations. And the Peace Inc. approach relies on, on many other assumptions, like, like the idea that all good things come together. So there is a package deal that we can promote in conflict zones. Mm -hmm. And the package deal includes peace and justice and democracy and human rights and gender equality. You know, all of this good stuff. 
And I show in my book that uh, all of these assumptions uh, on which the Peace Inc. approach relies, they're all detrimental, they're misleading, uh, um, and uh, they often lead to counterproductive consequences on the ground, including an increase in violence. And so I contrast that, and I have, of course, a lot of stories and you know, you've read the book, you know, I love telling stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I have a lot of stories and, and evidence and statistics, etc., to support that. But the part that I prefer in the book is uh, what I spent, I think, 70% of the book or, or, or 90% of the book doing is talking about the success cases. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the approach that I think is absolutely fascinating, the alternative approach. So um, the idea is that uh, we've talked a lot about what has gone wrong when we've tried to stop wars in the past, but now it's time to think about what has gone right. And when you look at what has gone right, well, it turns out that elections don't deal peace, that democracy itself might not be the golden ticket, at least not in the short term. Contrary to what most politicians preach, uh, I show that building peace doesn't require billions in aid or massive international interventions. Instead, uh, it often involves giving power to ordinary citizens. And so I show in the book that ultimately many successful examples of peace building in the past few years have involved innovative grassroots initiatives led by local people and at times supported by foreigners, often using methods shown by the international elite. So my approach is really completely different from Peace Inc. because Peace Inc. focuses on elite agreement, abstract peace agreements, handshakes between presidents, negotiations between government and rebel leaders. And and that's probably what most of your audience has in mind when they think about peace building. They think about these big peace conferences in New York or in Geneva or in Addis Ababa. Well, and, and they also think about uh, peace builders who come in from the outside. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about, I mean, you used the term at one point, uh, the aid industry. Uh, yep. My predecessor, Tom Weiss, director of the Ralph Bunch Institute, used to talk about aid, the aid business. So, I mean, there are these critical voices that, you know, have come forward to make these kinds of critiques. Uh, but we're talking about a kind of phenomenon that now basically goes back to the, you know, end of World War II. And over time, there's been the development of this whole, you know, bureaucracy and this whole, um, whatever approach to, uh, dealing with, uh, peace and, and conflict in other places. And I mean, to some degree, you know, you, you sort of caution against this conclusion that peace ink really just has to go away. Um, but at some level, you are sort of saying that a lot of that is unhelpful, really, to the process of building or, or maintaining peace. So, I, you know, how would you respond to somebody who is invested in those bureaucracies and uh, thinks that they do a lot of good in the world? Well, I think that the bureaucracies, like the United Nations, are 
are standard bureaucracies, meaning that they are flawed, they have plenty of problems, but on the other hand, uh, I agree with Tom Weiss that uh, the UN is still, as an ideal, it's still something fantastic. The idea that all of the countries in the world will send representatives and that all together we want to resolve problems like war, like underdevelopment, like human rights violations altogether, I think that's it's a beautiful, beautiful ideal. And and I really don't want to get rid of these kind of bureaucracies. So whenever I meet with people who work for these bureaucracies, what I tell them is that I don't I absolutely do not want to uh to 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 get rid of their jobs or of or what they do in conflict zones. What I do is I want to increase the effectiveness of these bureaucracies. Uh, when you look at the main goals of these bureaucracies, for instance, uh, for the peacekeeping and Department of Political Affairs, uh, they want to prevent violence. They want to resolve conflict. They want to promote peace. And that, to me, they can do so much more effectively if they change their approach, if they change the way they understand war and conflict, and if they change the way they understand peace. And, and that's why I wrote the book, is to, to promote this different understanding of war and peace. Right. So your approach also has certain features of what I call leading by following. Um, that is your approach counsels, you know, humility, listening, putting the local people, you know, front and center, uh, and what's been called in various contexts, you know, leading from behind. Um, I think it was an Obama official most recently used it, you know, prominently. But I sort of wonder, I mean, is that really possible if you're a person from the wealthy parts of the world who's now in an impoverished place far from Europe and the United States, um, you know, trying to contribute to this goal that you may share with the local people. But, you know, inevitably you're in a kind of privileged position, it seems to me. So how, how do you deal with that? Well, I think it's completely possible for white, wealthy people to uh, to help as long as they change their attitude, as long as they don't use and adopt the Peace Inc. attitude. The Peace Inc. attitude is thinking that you know better, that you have the right theory, skills, and expertise, and that you bring the ideal solutions to people's problems. And that's something that I've really seen in every conflict zone where I've worked, both the very poor places like uh, Congo, for instance, or South Sudan, and the much richer ones, uh, like, for instance, uh, Northern Ireland or uh, Israel and the Palestinian territories. And so what I show is that the attitude is really the important part, the way you go about your job, what uh, the way you try to interact with local populations, uh, how long you stay on site, how extensively you try to learn the local languages and cultures. And I portray in the book a lot of role models, a lot of people who come from really all over the world, who work for very different organizations in very different countries, who have all kinds of backgrounds. So some of them are very highly educated and others are not. Some of them are very poor and others are very wealthy. Uh, some of them are white, other 
uh, or I mean, some of them are Caucasian or, or African or Asian. I mean, you know, people like really all kinds of background, nationalities, etc. And I really show that they can use and, and many of them actually show how we can lead from behind, lead by following, be humble and actually be effective on the ground. And, and again, I, I have many stories in the book precisely to show that it's possible whoever you are and wherever you come from you can be one of these role models but how do you how do you inculcate the sort of humility that you're describing as really the essential kind of uh, attitude to have you know i mean we are talking about people generally speaking who go overseas uh, you know we're talking about people who are highly educated and you know often have expertise however you know useful you may think it is in the contexts in which they you know go um, but nonetheless, they tend to be people with relatively, uh, you know, advantaged kind of backgrounds. And maybe that's not so easy to pair with, you know, humility and leading from behind. I mean, so how do you, you know, how do you persuade people that that's what they really need rather than uh, some other kind of expertise? Well, that's why I wrote the Frontline Peace. <laughs> <Right. laughs> no, but that, that's exactly the reason why I wrote this new book. It's because I wanted to show people two things. I wanted to show uh, aid workers that ordinary people have a lot more knowledge, skills, and expertise than what we usually believe. And that's why the stories I tell of each we of Somaliland, of these Pockets of peace where people have managed to resolve conflict in the middle of the most violent, the bloodiest conflict in the world. I think it's really important because it shows that local community resources, ordinary people do have the power to build peace, much more than what we usually think. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that I try to show in the book is that uh, the approach that we were talking about, leading from behind, is actually much more effective. So it's not only that morally it's a, a better way to go about things, which is something that most people agree on, but also the idea that in terms of results, in terms of effectiveness, it enables aid workers to reach the results that they want. It enables them to decrease violence, to have better relationships, to be much more effective. So in the front lines of peace, I really try to convince aid workers that adopting this new approach and and getting rid of the Peace Inc. assumptions is something that's going to benefit not only the populations that they want to help, but also themselves Mm -hmm. in the long run. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, all this also bears on your research methodology, which is known as participant action research. I mean, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and how it differs from what you think of as less effective research strategies. Yes, I'm always happy to talk about research methodology. So my own research methodology is what I call participant observation. Mm-hmm. Meaning that in the book, uh, I, everything, and I work as an ethnographer. Uh, so to me, everything is data. Right. And so I try to put myself in the shoes of the peace builders. I try to experience the world like they do experience the world. So I went patrolling with United Nations peacekeepers. I spent a lot of time uh, talking with them, hanging around with them. Um, 
eating, uh, partying, working, writing reports. So I, I really try to experience the world through their eyes. And I also uh, draw on the standard um, archival research and in-depth interviews and document analysis. But uh, for peace building, uh, and that goes back to the question you were asked, which was, Precisely about participating action, re- participatory action research. To me, participatory action research is a method of peace building. It's not a method of research. It's a method of peace building. And it's a method of peace building. Uh, it's a method that has been used in social action all over the world uh, for social justice, for human rights promotion, for economic development. And that the Life and Peace Institute, one of the role model organizations I mentioned in the book, the Life and Peace Institute brought it to peace building. And so the idea, in a nutshell, is that um, first, you don't have templates, answers to war and violence. Uh, so the peacing approach is to have this kind of standard strategies that you put in place wherever you are in the world. Uh, in the participatory action research approach, you actually try to design strategies with your intended beneficiaries. And so would you like me to tell you a little bit about how LPI does that on the ground? Um, sure. Uh, there are definitely a couple of other questions I'd like to get to, but absolutely. Okay. So... LPI doesn't implement programs directly. So instead, uh, it works with and through a few hand-picked local organizations. And the main role of these local organizations is to support people on the ground. So the local organizations empower ordinary people to develop their own analysis of their community's conflict, uh, think about what the best solutions would be, and then implement the solutions. So you see the difference with the usual way to build peace in war zones. In the LPI model, in the participatory action research model, it's not foreigners based in headquarters and capital cities who conceive, design, and implement peace-building programs. Uh, It's not national or provincial elite either, and it's not the states or the government, uh, but instead it is the intended beneficiary themselves, including ordinary people who conceive, design, and implement peace-building programs with the help of the Life and Peace Institute and its local partners. Got it. So um, you mentioned in the book uh, another issue that uh, I wanted to ask about, and that is the, as I think you put it, the expectation, meeting the expectations of donors. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the tensions that there may be between the expectations of donors and the sort of on-the-ground demands of peacemaking. Uh, I'm always curious, you know, to what extent donors are driving things that are happening on the ground in these contexts that might not really be the kinds of things that the people on the ground think are the, you know, things they need the most. Uh, Could you speak to that? Yes, I'm so glad you asked this question, John, because it is really important. And it's also one of the things that when I talk to peace builders on the ground, they constantly mention donor constraints. 
as one of the reasons why they're using the Peace Inc. top-down outsiders-led approach as opposed to using the alternative approach that I think works better. And so the the general constraints that they often complain about uh, is uh, uh, first the fact that programs have to be set from the start. What you do when you want to get funding from a donor is that you submit a plan of what you're going to do for the next six months or two years or three years with very set activities and with indicators to show when you have succeeded, etc. So everything is planned from the start. Well, in fact, when you look at the programs that have actually succeeded on the ground, these programs are flexible. And it's not only my research, it's also the research by Susanna Campbell, for instance, uh, and by many other people, showing that flexibility, responding to how situations evolve on the ground, how uh, people perceive your programs, what kind of feedback they give you, what kind of requests they make, that's really important. But if your donor tells you, no, 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 you committed to doing X, Y, Z from the start, then you're stuck as a peace builder. So. So the, the set programs is a, is a first constraint. Uh, another one is that we were talking about leading from behind, uh, but donors often request logos. They, what they call visibility. And if you've ever been to a conflict zone or if you're anybody who's listening to us has ever been to a conflict zone or, or to a very impoverished area, you can probably picture in your mind what I have uh, what I describe in the book, which is um, places where logos of donors are everywhere to show which road was rehabilitated uh, with the money of which country. So, for instance, I, I remember when I'm when I'm in Congo and I'm driving through a rural area, it's very common that I see blackboards saying this road was rehabilitated by USAID. Uh, and it's next to a hospital where you have a big logo from the European Union. And then next to it, uh, you, uh, meet the mayor whose computer was given by, let's say, the German government. And so you have a big German flag. I mean, <laughs> you see, you see that. So it's just a matter of putting logos everywhere, the donors tell me, but putting logos everywhere, it really shows the work of the donors. It shows that these programs were led by the donors, that they own the programs. And so it goes completely against the idea of being low profile and supporting from behind without putting yourself forward. So visibility is, is another big thing. And and the third one is uh, the time frame. Donors often request programs that are in a very short time frame, six months, two years, three years. While we all know that if we want to build peace or if we want to build democracy, it, it takes more than six months. Like think about how long it has taken for the United States to, to get over the, the scores of the civil war. Uh, and and same in Europe. Think about how long it's taken for European countries to get over World War II and to reconcile after, after World War II, and we still have a lot of tensions. So the idea that we're going to resolve a conflict or promote development within six months or even two years, it's, it's completely absurd. And, and I show in the book that 
whenever we have long-term funding, long-term deployment, that's when we have much more effective programs. And the last thing is accountability. Uh-huh. Um, because, uh, and, and I'll just go very briefly on that. Uh, donors require accountability to them, but not to people on the ground. Meaning that as an aid worker, you will write reports, a lot of reports, you will do everything to satisfy your donor, but it's much more rare than you try to satisfy and that you ask for feedback and you adapt your work based on feedback from the people you're intending to help. And that again, um, Susanna Campbell has shown and I show and many other people show that it's one of the reasons why peace building programming are not as effective as they could be. Interesting. So um, to ask you a last question, I mean, one of the things that struck me as very interesting in the book was your mention of Saul Alinsky and the kind of parallels between what you're arguing and the, his philosophy of community organizing from back in the 60s. Um, and it struck me as interesting that you, you know, conclude the book really with a chapter that has to do with uh, the ways in which your ideas might also apply, do indeed apply, you know, here in the United States as well. I mean, given that this is a book primarily about places like Colombia and Somalia and Congo, uh, I thought that was an interesting way to conclude the book. So could you tell us a little bit about how you see that? Of course, because to me, that's that's a really essential part of the book. I put it in the conclusion because somehow it it struck me that as a narrative device, it was a nice way to conclude the book. But really, to me, um, we, we have to think of a continuum in terms of violence. We, it's, it's unhelpful to think about, on the one hand, war-torn countries, and on the other hand, peaceful countries. Uh, because really, we can think about a continuum from war and violence to, to peace, and many countries are somewhere toward the middle of this continuum. And, and the other reason why I don't like the dichotomy war versus uh, peaceful, war-torn versus peaceful countries is that when you look at the countries with the highest number of murders and, and killings in the world, only half of them are actually war-torn countries. The other half are considered to be peaceful countries, and that's the research by Keith Krauss that really shows that very well. And so to me, when we think about uh, addressing violence, uh, we think about addressing a problem that uh, that has manifestations all over the world. And the guiding principles, not the template, of course, not the strategies, but the guiding principles can work in many different places. And so we've talked about the the main one or some of the main ones already, the fact that you have to be flexible. It's something that, again, whether we're talking about programs in the United States or programs in Congo, flexibility, being responsive to changes in the situation is really important. We've talked about leading from behind. Again, just as important if you're in the United States, in France, in the UK, or uh, in other parts of the world, uh, relying on insiders is really important. Again, when you look at the programs that actually work in the United States, the programs against, for instance, gang violence, uh, they rely on insiders. I love the work of Cure Violence. I don't know if you're familiar with this organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cure Violence is this grassroots organization 
that works with former gang members and with victims of violence and with victims with sorry with uh, members of the community to address uh, problems of uh, gang and violence in inner city neighborhoods uh, in the United States. So this this idea of working with insiders, uh, respecting their action, uh, respecting their knowledge, listening to them, and uh, as an outsider, not believing that you arrive with the right theories, the right skills, and the right expertise. Again, that's something that's extremely important wherever you are in the world if you try to address problems like like violence. And so to me, I, I really see, and I, I saw during my research, I saw a lot of parallels between the strategies that work in conflict zones and the strategies that work also here in the United States. Well, indeed, it's a great way to wind up the book, and it gives all of us, whether we're interested in the rest of the world or the United States, a uh, reason to read the book. So I want to thank Severine Otisera of uh, Barnard College of Columbia University for taking the time to talk with us about her new book, The Front Lines of Peace, uh, on peace building around the world. Remember to subscribe to and to rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Christo Voinoff for his technical assistance and Meryl Sovner for her help organizing this episode. I also want to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons. Thank you so much, John, for inviting me, and thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks so much. Great to have you.